You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good morning, Free City Church, and happy Easter. My name is Maggie Teets, and I have been a member at Free City Church for about seven years. I am a part of the Teets Higginbotham City Group. And we meet on Monday nights. Tomorrow we'll be at our house. We're having breakfast for dinner. And if you're not a part of a city group, we would love to have you. I also serve on the offering team and the prayer team. And if you didn't know that we had a prayer team, um, every week after communion, um, there are some men and women from our church that stand on the sides, sometimes behind the curtains, and they wear lanyards that say prayer team. And we would love to pray for you. Um, No matter where you're at, if you're feeling distant from the Lord, if you're feeling um, anxious today, if you're feeling tired, um, whatever it is how you feel, we would just love to pray for you today. So today's reading is going to be John 11, 17 through 44. And there are some black Bibles that are located underneath some of the seats, and you can find the reading on page 844. John 11, 17 through 44. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And any and everyone who, believe, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, 
Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, first of all, just thank you for this space that we have um, been able to use to gather here this morning um, for the middle school, for the way that it just represents our community. Lord, I pray for the students in this school, Lord, um, in a culture of rising pressure and anxiety. God, the, thing that, the things that these kids are dealing with today, Lord, um, we know that they need you. And we ask, Lord, that you would place um, a trusted adult or a trusted friend in their life that can share the good news of Jesus with them, Lord, that they can know that um, in this world, Lord, they are not without hope. So, Lord, I pray for the students. I pray for the teachers, God, um, that you would also minister to them, Lord, that you would provide your hope and love and peace to the teachers, the staff, um, the students, the families of students, Lord, everyone um, that sets foot in this space that we're in right now, Lord. God, I thank you for um, just the men and women who have been who have served today on this Easter service, for the worship team, um, for those that showed up hours early to get things set up, for those who will be cleaning up after, um, for everyone serving in kids' ministry and loving on our kids, Lord, for every person serving today, um, we thank you, God, um, and for every person sitting here, Lord, we just ask that you prepare our hearts to receive from you today during the sermon. God, will you still our hearts, souls, and our minds, Lord, to receive from you in the midst of the chaos of Easter weekend and all the excitement and the fun and the families and friends, Lord? Will you draw us to a place of silence so that we can hear from you today, Lord, and that we can be encouraged um, by you? And Lord, will you use the sermon to glorify you? Thank you so much for the Easter story and that Jesus is alive. Amen. Good morning. My name's Casey, and man, they just turned those lights back on. Um, I know you're out there somewhere. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm one of the uh, pastors here, and uh, if you're with us for the first time, uh, if you're with us to celebrate uh, the baptism of a friend or a loved one, man, we're so excited you're here. Uh, you know, uh, if you're with us for the first time or been here a lot, uh, we had a saxophone today, and that was exciting. Um, yeah. We, uh, and so, yeah, that was fun. Uh, which, you know, we took the black screen down there, but we left it up here in the, uh, the, the makeout section, uh, the dark one uh, for the saxophone. We, we've been trying to get those lights on. We just don't know how. Uh, but apparently we know how to get these lights on. You know, before we get uh, into uh, verse 17 and start, I, I want to kind of back us up just to give us a little bit of the details of what's building up to this moment. 
And so if you have your Bible open, man, if you look back in verse 1 of this chapter, verse 1 and 3, we, we learn that Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, is sick. And, and we learn that Jesus loves Lazarus. Like, like look, in verse 1 it says, Lord, or, or in verses 1 through 3 you read this, it says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Like, like really plain, like, hey, you love Lazarus and he is sick. And this is like sick, sick. Like we're concerned and so we are sending you word. And this is before communication is easy. We are sending someone out to find you, to tell you like this is an emergency moment. We don't know how it's gonna turn out. You love him and he's sick. And so that, that's made really, really clear, but there's something else that's not made quite as clear. If you, if you see the word Lord right there, that word Lord, it, it's the word kire, and it, it's the vocative term of a word we also get, which is kyrios, which both are translated as Lord. Sometimes kyrios is translated, depending on uh, your Bible translation, in all capital letters, because through the whole of the Bible, it is mostly used to describe like Yahweh, like a God term, but here it's just kire. And so in the Gospel of John, what we have so often is before the resurrection, when people address Jesus, they use kire, which means sir. It's kind of like what you would say for, you know, a, a professor or for someone that you respect. And so in essence, what we have before the resurrection is we know that Jesus, man, he's someone you should respect. He's someone that you should listen to. He's been doing some pretty cool things, and he's been amassing a crowd. He's been making some people really, really angry. But what we can see here is like, sir, the one whom you love is sick. But a lot of commentaries, they note that after the resurrection, the term changes to kyrios which is this Lord claim. And so something shifted in the identity of Jesus where it went from like, man, what we can say for sure is teacher. No one taught like you. Or what we can say for sure is like miracle worker. Like you've been doing some crazy stuff and it's demand some attention. Like we can say those things. But one by one, we see the disciples, man, they come at different places to see, no, there's something different. There is something different about Jesus. And so it, it kind of poses some questions because if we see this unfold, what we see is like Jesus waits. Mary and Martha send letter, the one you love is really, really sick. We need you to come. And Jesus waits. And so if you look in verses four through six, it says this, Jesus says that Lazarus' illness will not lead or end in death, but will end in the glorification of himself. It goes on to say that he stays an extra two days. And so like, that's not the news they wanted. That's certainly not the news that Lazarus wanted. Like Lazarus, like, okay, so you love me. You know that I'm really, really sick, and you'll get around to coming later. Like, what is wrong with that solution? And so then it jumps, and like, just to be really clear, if you jump to verse 11 through 16, like, Jesus realizes how serious it is. Matter of fact, Jesus knows that Lazarus has died. And so then in verse 14, it says this, then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus is dead. Like he had just had this little discourse where he says this, hey man, he's sleeping. And the disciples are like, well, don't wake him up. Let him sleep it off, you know? And he's like, no, no, no. I was just saying that to be polite. He's actually dead. But we need to go there. 
And so he goes on, like, look at this. You know, if you get to verse 7 and 10, so we back up just a little bit, like there's something I just don't want you to miss out because, you know, I think sometimes we give Thomas a bad rap. In verses 7 through 10, it says, you know, that, you know, he says, we need to go back to Judea. And Thomas and all the disciples are like, hey, man, we don't want to go back there. Like, if you were with us in chapter 10 and you were with us in chapter 9, they've been trying to kill you for a while. We don't want to go back to Judea. And then Thomas, you know, because Jesus says, no, we're going to go back there. And then just Thomas says this in verse 16. Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Like, that's a pretty bold statement. Like, we remember Thomas says that, I'm not going to believe unless I touch the nail scars in his hand. If I was Thomas, I would be ticked off about that. Because this is more like Sir William Wallace Braveheart statement, like, let us go die with him. Like, I, just to help remind everyone that I said that too, I would like get it yeah, tattooed on my knuckles. Let us go and die with Jesus, exclamation point, just to remember that I just didn't doubt. I was ready to die. So we see this really bold proclamation of like, all right, we're with you. But Jesus waited. Jesus waited until like all circumstances would say it was too late. Jesus loved him, and he waited, and sickness turned worse, and worse turned to death, and death turned to grieving, and then Jesus got there, and it was like, all hope is lost. Like, it, it begs some questions, like, what if my cancer brings more glory to Jesus? What if my troubled past that haunts me in my present displays the beauty and the all-sufficiency of Jesus? What if I have to go through something to see a certain type of Jesus on the other side? Is there anything that he can bring when it feels too late? What does Jesus bring to this moment of despair, suffering, and loss? What does Jesus bring? You know, and so just to recap, like what we've seen is in these verses, Jesus loves Lazarus. Lazarus is very sick. Jesus knows that he's going to die. Jesus lets Lazarus die, and then Thomas gets a new tattoo. Like that's, that's what happens in these verses. And now that you know the backstory of the tomb of Lazarus, let's go and see what we find in verses 17 through 44. And I want to identify different things that Jesus brings. It, it was a couple years ago. We were uh, driving to Colorado. We, when we do that, we leave like 4 a.m. because our kids are still asleep. We just kind of shove them in the suburban. And uh, one of our daughters, Liv, she's, a, she's, a, she's like a real thoughtful kid. And so she always makes these fun boxes where she uh, just puts stuff in a box. And like, if there's a moment of boredom or an emergency, she opens up the box and she magically has something for everything. Um, like she, she's the one that's going to pack band. Like if they go on a bike ride, she packs band-aids and, you know, different stuff. And, uh, you know, our kids come back and they got band-aids on their forehead just in case. Well, this was, she, she, she decorated it and called it a fun box. And she wakes up before everyone else about 6 a.m., and she's rattling around in her fun box, fun box and she pulls out um, her, uh, kick, uh, not a flute, what is it? Uh, Dwight Schrute has one. Uh, yeah, 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 whatever you said, I'll go with that. Uh, and so she pulls it, oh, recording, yeah, recording. Uh, she pulls it out, um, I think that's right. 
And she yells, people of America, prepare to be annoyed. And she starts playing the accordion. Um, and so in, in some ways, man, we just want to ask this question. In this, in this dark moment, what does Jesus bring? And I'm going to run through five things really fast that he brings. And you can take notes or you can just listen. But Jesus brings truth. Jesus brings tears. He brings anger. He brings resurrection. And then he offers grace. So let's take a look at this, verse 17. First, Jesus brings to Martha truth. Verse 17 says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Four days. Like, I'm not a doctor, but four days dead is like dead, dead. Like, John is being very, very careful to give us specific details so that we're not confused about the situation, that we're not thinking like, well, I mean, maybe, you know, he was breathing really shallow and, you know, the cold tomb kind of woke him up. I mean, he wants us to be very specific. Four days. And so four days, verse 18, it says, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And so the, the situation is people have gathered over to the house. It's a wake-like situation. There is food and casserole, and people are just crying with one another, sharing stories about Lazarus with one another. And Martha gets word that Jesus is close, and she gets up, and she goes out, and she meets him because she has questions, maybe even some accusations. And so look, look at these questions. And so verse 21, it says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Like, have you ever, have you, has that ever been like the question in your heart? God, God where were you? Where, where were you when this was happening or when this went down? Like, if you're the God who sees all and knows all and could do all, where were you? And so Martha goes and finds Jesus and says, where were you? And then stop. Like in a moment, we're going to see Mary say the exact same thing, almost word for word. But after that phrase, it's something different. And so look what Martha does, verse 22. She gets theological. Like she goes, and this is pretty incredible faith. Look, she says, where were you? But then in, in verse 22, she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Like she comes and she brings a complaint or maybe an accusation, but then she professes some pretty incredible faith. And so we're still in the section of Kiri. We're still in the section of Lord or Sir. And so she says, listen, this is what I know. You do incredible things. You love my brother. God listens to you when you pray. You know, bread gets multiplied. Fish gets multiplied. You walked on water. That was a cool trick. I mean, you made water into wine. Like everyone loved that one. I mean, she says over and over, God listens to you. Whatever you ask, I'm confident that God will deliver it's pretty bold. It's pretty incredible. It's like, whatever you pray, I think God will do it. And I, may, I don't know if she knew all that might be there, but it is this bold theological statement. And so 
Martha comes with this deep question, where were you? And then this proclamation, this theological truth, if you ask, I think God will do it. And, and look what happens. Like, look what happens. We, we see Jesus answer her theologically. And so in verse 23, it says this. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And so he just says that right now. He doesn't give any time indication, but he comes out and says, your brother will rise again. And look at her response. Martha said to him, I know. I know that he'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. Like his, her response is theological, but it's theological like in the sense of in the future. I know it's going to work out. I know that you say all these things will be for my good and for your glory. I, I know that it's going to work out. I know that there's a plan. But what does that do for me right now? What does that theological truth have anything to do for my suffering right now? My brother is dead. Like that, has that ever been you? Like, like I, I, God, I know you can do all things, but my marriage is falling apart. Or I know you can do all things, but the depression won't stop. Or I know you can do all things, but man, I'm anxious all the time. I don't know who I can trust. I know you can do all things, but I don't know if you can do anything for me right now. See, Martha comes with this complaint and comes with this question. And we see Jesus answer and bring truth because it goes on and he clarifies. Look, look at verse 25. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And so he says, listen, I know you have enough faith to say in the eschaton, at the end of all things, the kingdom of God will be established. And it is like up there in the future. But I'm telling you that the resurrection is not just up in the future. I am the resurrection. I am all hope. I am what brings death to life. I am what lifts up suffering into joy. I am all of those things. I am the resurrection power of God before you. And so in essence, Jesus is saying, yes, Martha, the resurrection is true and it is coming, but I am the resurrection come. Do you trust me? Is this truth, does it fit? I know it fits awkwardly into the pain of your life. I know it's hard, but yes, my coming felt delayed. Yes, my words seem late, but I am here and I am telling you that I am the resurrection that has come. Is that truth enough for this moment? After our, our Good Friday service, um, one of our uh, a band members was packing up, you know, guitars and all that stuff. You know, I don't need to tell you who it was. It was Brian for sure. And so he was packing up all his stuff. And uh, he overhears um, some, some, like, some high school age students talking about, man, what's these church flags doing up here? And... Um, and they're kind of going back and forth, and he's just listening. He's like, man, I think it's, that, it's about that one dude who maybe rose from the dead. I mean, I don't know what his name, like Jesus. And the other guy was like, man, that is some real zombie. And then there was an explicative. I won't tell you if Brian put the explicative or just did the, you know, asterisks or whatever. But like all of that, and so I get this text from Ethan, you know, like just a reminder of where we are, you know, and just a reminder that the truth, we need to get it out there, the good news of who Jesus is. And I, I, I text back, Jesus, the truer zombie, you know. 
And then I, I was sharing with my sisters, like, yeah, he's the Ozzy, the original zombie. And, um, you know, these things can keep going. I'm, I'm a dad, so I've got all kinds of dad humor. Uh, but what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with your pain and suffering right now? Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. See, when Martha says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, she's speaking with theological specification. She is saying, Jesus, I believe you are the anointed one of God who the prophets told us about, who would come to save your people. He, she didn't say, I believe you are a Christ. You are a one who came to help out. She said, I believe you are the one. And so there's some sort of shift happening from this Kyrie to this Kyrios. There's some sort of shift happening from, I believe God listens to your prayers, and Jesus steps out one step further of, no, man, the resurrection is not in the future. I am the resurrection. And she says, man, all indicators point to you are the Christ. And so do you need the truth of God in your suffering? Are you losing grip? Are you losing the grip of your faith because of present pain that keeps going? Jesus comes with truth to Martha. He says, I am the resurrection. But that's not all that Jesus brings. Look at the, the discourse starting in verse uh, 32 that we see uh, with, with Mary. And so with Mary, Jesus brings tears. And so we see almost the same word-for-word -word response, the same question. Apparently Mary and Martha had talked, and they had settled on the same kind of complaint. But the response is so different. So in verse 32 it says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Like, that sounds familiar. Like, do you think that in their sorrow and suffering, or even before the, the death of their brother, in their fear that they talked about, man, Jesus needs to be here. He loves him. Why is he not here? Why is he delaying? Why can't he get here? When's he going to come through? Like, the anxious questions that race in your heart over and over, they found clarification in community in this complaint. Where is Jesus? And so the same question and this same objection, similar hurts, maybe even similar accusations. God, where are you? But, but she doesn't come with this theological statement, but I know that whatever you ask, God's going to give. She just loses it and weeps. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus brought Tears. Jesus meets Martha with theological truth and points to his deity. I am the resurrection. But with Mary, he can't even get to those statements. He just cries. He just loses it. And like, it's a question of why. And the answer is they're different people. 
Mary and Martha were, were different. I mean, you know, you have Martha being busy cleaning house while Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus just taking it in. Martha comes and says, man, why don't you tell my bum lazy sister to help me out? And Jesus like, ah, leave her alone, man. She's chosen better. But now we have this like, this flip reverse thing happening where Martha is like at the feet of Jesus saying, I know God will listen to you. I know that you are the Christ. I know that you can do. And then we have Mary she can't even get it out. Have you, have you ever like been with a loved one, a friend or a spouse or a family member, and like you love that they're trying to help you in your suffering, but they are not helping at all? Like you realize like, man, they're trying, and I, I love that they're trying, but it just is not really hitting the mark. This was a couple years ago, like I was, I was sick like virus, like sick, sick, like, you know, sweats. Like I just hurt everywhere. Like my eyes hurt, like the back of my eyes hurt. My, head, my skin hurt. Like I would look at my hands and be like, why does that hurt? Like here, like I just hurt. And so I, I, I go to bed and I'm trying to sleep it off and, and uh, suddenly I wake up and everything was different. My kids had decided that they needed to help me and so they packed stuffed animals, like hundreds of them, all around me. Like it was a little seance of love to heal me all around me. And I just woke up sweating, you know. I just woke up like, oh my gosh, I'm cuddling with a bunny. You know, I just woke up. And I mean, I, my thought was, that doesn't help. But I love that they tried to help. But it's not just for me. They, they do this to our dog all the time. Like our dog will get up on the couch on a blanket. We're not animals. And so on the blanket. And they will slowly erect a pillow house all around him. And he just sits there and he takes it because he knows it's the only choice. He has to take it because, I, mean, you know, I mean, he's not that important to the family. You know? And so he just takes it. And they're trying to love him. And I'm like, he doesn't want that. He wants chicken. That's, what, that's his love language. Or, or if you're married, have you ever had this like, uh, he's trying and that's cute, he's trying. Like I, I've learned that when I come to problems, like I just want to get to solutions. Like it makes me feel like there's hope. Like, I mean, we could do this or we could do that. And I've learned that my wife doesn't appreciate that in the moment as much as I appreciate that. But I've learned a secret. This is the secret. I've learned to say, man, that sounds, the pause is very important. You have to pause. Man, that sounds Hard. And she's like, oh, you get me. And I'm like, I know, babe. <laughs> but like, we have different love languages. We have different needs. Like in, in moments of crisis, like we sometimes like, man, I know you're trying, but it's not helping. Does it do anything for you that if you need truth, Jesus can bring truth. If you need tears, he will sit with you and cry. Whatever you need, he can perceive your heart. And it may not feel like it's what you need, but he can address what you actually need in moments of suffering. And so Jesus brings tears. And tears communicate a lot. Like, like when you're with someone who's suffering or hurting and you cry with them, even if it's not your suffering or your loss, you're saying, I love you. I'm entering in with you. I will carry your pain. I will be in your pain with you. And what's crazy, if you think about this, he's entering into this pain knowing that in just a few short minutes, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And why? Why? 
Because Jesus is not just the truth. He definitely is the truth. He is also the love of God on display for humanity. And for love to be love, it has to enter in. Jesus enters in with tears. If you're suffering with a present hurt or a past pain that you just don't understand, does it do anything to see a weeping God who looks at that and says, man, it breaks my heart. That's not how this world was supposed to be. That's not the outcome that I did. And I've entered in and I will cry with you, but I don't just enter in to cry. I'm not just the weeping God. I'm also the resurrection God. And so at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus brings truth. Lazarus was dead. He was missing life. The solution to dead is adding life. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. But Jesus also brings tears. But he also brings anger. Look, it's hard to kind of see. Look in verse 33. Like we don't see it in first reading because the translation is bad. And when I say that, I'm super humble. Uh, translating is hard. And I just read it in multiple commentaries and they seem to know a lot more than me. And they all said, this is lexically irresponsible. And so look at what it says. It says in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, it says he was deeply moved. Now the word there is abrimomai. He was deeply abrimomai. And so it says deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now all the commentaries, they say, hey, listen, this word is used in extra biblical instances. It's written down in this time frame to describe like an angry horse who is like snotting and, you know, angry and stomping his feet, like maybe going to trample on someone. It's used to describe an unleashed rage. And so like all the commentaries, even old commentaries, or I'm sorry, all the translations, even old translations, they dumb it down because they don't know what to do with Jesus who is just crying, and now Jesus is enraged walking to the tomb. And the question is like, what is he angry about? See, Jesus enters in into sadness, and then when you have suffered loss or something you love has suffered loss, the right emotion to follow that is anger because anger motivates information to change. You know, mad mothers against drunk driving. A bunch of moms were, were angry that their children were now dead because of drunk driving. And so in their anger, they rallied together to change the laws because they were saying, this is not the reality. No mom should lose their son or daughter because the laws are wrong. It needs to change. Anger motivated to make change. This is healthy. Like Jesus doesn't numb it with substances. Like Jesus doesn't just despair in depression. Jesus doesn't minimize it with like, you know, just, you know, sentiment. Like it is what it is, even though I love to say it is what it is because it's so hard to argue with, but it's really kind of despairing. He doesn't despair it. He also doesn't just lose himself in Netflix and doesn't think about it. Jesus enters in with tears and then it moves to this ibrimomine anger. You know, like deeply moved. We actually see it again. Go, go to verse 34. It says, and he said, where have you laid him? 
And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them, uh, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then verse 38, we see the word again. Then Jesus deeply moved, abrimomai, again, came to the tomb. Over and over it says, man, he was deeply moved. And this word does not describe like what you feel when Bambi's mom gets shot. Like that's deeply moved. Like you're like, oh man, that's sad but man, we might mount that on the wall. You know, I mean, that, that's deeply moved. Or, or, or like when you go to the Precious Moments uh, Chapel in Joplin, Missouri, and you walk out, you're like, oh man, they're a bunch of cute babies. Some of them big, some of them little, but you know, it's cute. Like that might be deeply moved. A brim of mine does not describe that. That would be like coming out of the, the Precious Moment Chapel and just screaming in rage, like they made all the babies, you know, angels, angels aren't, you know, babies, you know, everybody, I mean, I gotta arrest him. Anger. Anger. Does it do anything for you when you think about suffering, the things that have done, been done to you, that God is angry at that? God, where were you? I saw it, and I'm angry. God, why didn't you show up? I was there, and I'm angry. Anger motivates to accomplish what was taken, to do something about it. And so why is he mad? Is he mad at Mary and Martha for not believing? Like, you're going to question me? I'm here. I'm Jesus. I mean, is he mad at them? No. He answers them precisely how he needs to answer them. He brings truth to Martha. He brings tears with Mary. Is, is he mad at the religious leaders who, if you heard, like they're like, man, we got to kill this guy, you know? I mean, is he mad at them? But at the foot of the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for what they don't know what they're doing. Is, is he mad at himself? Man, I shouldn't have delayed. I should have been here sooner. I, you know, I could have been here. I could have stopped it. No, man, that's what we do. We get all mad at ourselves in such a way because like, we feel like if we can be angry and beat ourselves up, we martyrize ourselves so people leave us alone. Jesus doesn't need to do that. He's gonna be an actual martyr for us. He doesn't whine. What is he angry about? Is he angry at their lack of faith? Why can't they see what I can do? Man, that is abusive faith. You make me mad because you don't have enough faith. That's not what we see. Jesus is angry at death. He sees and feels what it does, and he hates it. It saddens him, then it angers him to move him against it. Jesus hates what sin and death has done to his people and to this world. And so from the very first part of creation, before creation began, knowing what sin and death would do, a decision was made that then we see in Revelations, it says this, before the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain. Before all of it happened, Jesus already decided, I'm going to do it. And then the, the gospels say this, at just the right time, Jesus entered in. And so for many, many years, all the prophets could have said, man, why are you delaying? Where were you? Why aren't you showing up? And then at just the right time, Jesus enters in. Jesus hates your cancer. Jesus hates 
the marriage funk that keeps getting in between you two and keeps causing damage. Jesus hates the, the, the brokenness that haunts you. Like Jesus hates it and he steps in with tears to do something about it. And this is the gospel. The gospel, weakness resurrects to real strength. Repentance resurrects to forgiveness. The giving of possession resurrects to real wealth. Sorrow resurrects to joy. And death resurrects to life. Which brings us to the fourth thing. See, Jesus comes with truth. Jesus brings tears. Jesus brings anger. And Jesus brings resurrection. Verse 39, it says, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sisters of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus is asking them to look at something that will hurt them. Have you ever lost a loved one and gone early to the funeral to view the body and, you know, you kind of hold it together and you walk down the aisle and you're there and all of a sudden you see the empty body of the person you love and, man, you can't hold it together any longer. Jesus has them look at something that's really hard to look at. And I don't want you to miss this. This is what repentance is. Jesus comes and he holds up something in your life and he says, I want you to look at the effects of sin and death. And like getting to the resurrection, getting to the gospel, it starts with looking at something that's hard to look at. It's something that you did or that's inside of you or that haunts you or no matter what you seem to try to do, it's just true and it's there. And Jesus is saying, do you see the death that's in front of us? Do you see the empty corpse? Do you see what's before you? Because we have to see that before we want life. And so there's something hard to look at. Like, does your pride need to show itself as it is, death ruining your life? Is your marriage ravaged or out of control? Like, admit your pain and repent. Like, admit your part and say, I'm sorry. Jesus is asking you to see what it is that you might hope for resurrection kind of life. And so he says, let's see the body, bring him out. There's all kinds of objections, but they move the stone away. Look at verse 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. And so he prays out loud to connect us and the hearers with the answer. Like he says, listen, I am looking to God the Father and he's going to answer me because I am God the Son, Christ incarnate. And he says, will you hear me? Will you hear me so that they know that you hear me? And then when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, Come out. 
The man who had died came out with his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. The message of Easter is that God entered in to unbound, to unbind all the evidences of death that hold your life. The the message of Easter is that God will, in his loving kindness, present something that's hard to look at, that we might walk through with repentance, with hope of new life. The message of Easter is Jesus entered in, and he's the resurrection, but he's going to walk through death to be raised again so that we can follow him through death to find new life in Christ. The message of Easter is Jesus died and rose again. And it's resurrection, it's not compensation. Like Jesus didn't look at him and say, man, dang, your brother's dead, but you can have a new brother, maybe a better brother. He says, where death is, there will be life. Resurrection means that we will be raised and perfected. This world one day will be raised and perfected. That's why Romans 8 says all of creation is groaning. It's not what it should be. The world groans, it's not what it should be. Jesus enters and weeps and gets angry, it's not what it should be. To say yes to the gospel is to agree with Jesus and say it's not what it should be. So what's groaning now? What needs Jesus, the resurrection power of God, Jesus also offers grace. He brings truth to Martha. He brings tears to Mary. He brings anger. He brings resurrection power. And then we have this offer of grace. Look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this and listen to what they're risking, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come take away both our place and our nation. You see what they're holding against Jesus? They're like, man, we can let Jesus be Jesus or we can stop him. But if we don't stop him, then we're going to lose our control and our power, our place. And listen, that is exactly what you have to lay down to say yes to Jesus. You have to lay down the control of your life. You have to lay down the illusion of your power. You have to say, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God and I'm laying it down because I trust you more than what I have. And sometimes that's really hard to lay down. They killed him to not lay it down. Do you see what's aligning the people against Jesus? Power. What if we lose our place of power? I just have one warning, and then I'm going to give some instruction on how we take communion. So often, we have the fear of losing power, and we mask it with a, I'm not sure there's enough evidence yet. 
we, we look at it and we're like, man, we feel it. Like, man, if I give my life to Christ, I might have to change this or I might have to do that. If Jesus, who he says he is, he might have something to say about my lifestyle or my choices or what I do. And we start to say, well, I think I might need a little bit more evidence. I just want to paint the picture of what just happened. The religious leaders just heard word that Lazarus was raised from the dead. And matter of fact, they're like, man, we can't let him walk around. That looks bad. We're gonna have to kill him too. Poor Lazarus. Like he's gonna be killed again. In essence, they're saying, I'm not laying down my control because I need more evidence. That's the thief of the gospel still to this day. Something happened on a Sunday 2,000 years ago after a Friday 2,000 years ago when this carpenter who didn't have a formal education, never had an army, came from nowhere, caused such a ruckus that the authorities handed him over and he was crucified. And we act like that is abnormal. The Romans crucified thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people. Why do we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus when tens of thousands of other people were crucified? Can you name one other person who was crucified? Why are we talking about him? Something happened. And then all of his followers said he rose again and their lives changed completely. They ran because they were afraid. But after the seeing the resurrected Jesus, they stood and were martyred and were killed. Something happened. Just be careful that you're not trying to protect a place of power and control by saying, I need more evidence. We celebrate um, every week, maybe the best moment of the week, uh, coming to the communion table and it's just a reminder that, listen, whatever your struggle is, whatever it is, you bring it with you. You don't bring any elements because everything you need was done. And we come and we remember that the body of Jesus was broken. You'll start on the bread side and a piece will be torn away and it'll be handed to you. And then you take that and you dip it either into the wine, which is in the clayware, or grape juice, which is in the glassware. And we remember that his blood was spilled. And by these things, we're made right before God. The movement is just a reminder that, man, when God's word rests upon us, man, movement is almost always demanded. And so that's one movement. There's another movement that you can have. Like if we have communion in the back at the information table and it's individual packets, gluten-free and grape juice. But we also have the movement of if you need prayer and in the back along the aisles, there'll be someone there to pray for you and you can tell them as little or as much as you want to. But if there's something that you're saying, I ask the same question, God, where were you? Tell as little or as much as you want and let them just pray for you. Or maybe the movement is you haven't exactly decided who Jesus is yet and we're gonna ask you just to stay seated and to ask the question, do I really need more evidence or am I trying to protect something? And you won't stand out because it's chaotic. I mean, people are gonna be going to get babies and people are gonna be lining up to get baptized. I mean, it's gonna be chaotic. No one's gonna notice. But we want you to sit there and think about who is Jesus? Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, just in our movements, I pray that you would be really, really present.
and we would have a sense. If I have objections or if I have hurts I want you to enter or if I need you to be angry about something in my life or if I need tears or if I need truth, that there would just be a sense that you enter in with what I need. Lord Jesus, you did enter in to bring life. And we celebrate that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.